In his gospel, in the first chapter, in the 10th verse, John writes this. He, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God, who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, the first epistle of John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, John writes this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask you, please, to bless now your word to our hearts. You have promised through the foolishness of preaching to save men and women and children and, Lord, to build up and strengthen your church. And we pray, Lord, that we may find it so today. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There's a pithy saying that uh, has proven to be very wise over the years. It was, or it has rather, just three words in it. And they're, they're just three, but it's very prudent advice. Whenever you read or whenever you hear anything, consider the source. That's the pithy saying. Consider the source. No one has a a right to be taken seriously just because they have something to say or because they've written something or said something. To be taken seriously, one needs to have knowledge and one needs to have experience on the subject. Uh, They need to know what they're talking about. They need to have studied it and researched it and had some experience with it to really be worthy of credibility. One of my favorite illustrations of this is one that I've used before. It's from a Charles Schulz cartoon. 
in his book, Teenager is Not a Disease. And a lanky teen boy is walking along with a young girl from his youth group that he's doing everything he can to impress. And he says to her rather proudly, I consider myself to be an expert on the book of Revelation. And one of these days I intend to read it through. (laughs) His credentials as an expert are suspect, (laughs) to say the least. And any opinion that he might have on the book of Revelation really should be taken with a grain of salt after considering the source of of the opinion. So what about this John who is writing to you? When you consider the source, what about him? This John whose epistle we're going over here, is he to be considered a reliable source on the subjects that he addresses? And I think it's safe to say, as I ask that question in this context, that everyone here considers the answer to that question to be so obvious that it's somewhat of a silly question. Uh, You wouldn't be here if you thought otherwise, I'm sure. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, this disciple whom Jesus loved, who walked and talked with Jesus, witnessed his death, witnessed his resurrection, witnessed his ascension. He was given the great vision from heaven that we call the revelation of Jesus Christ. Could not be more qualified. But then that becomes the point, doesn't it? When you consider the source of this epistle, what sort of attention ought it to be given? What sort of study should be given to it? How highly should it be valued? And how carefully should its instructions be obeyed? If you look at this and say, well, it's silly to say, is he a reliable source? If you say that, then is it not worse than silly to ignore what he says? Or to take lightly what he writes. Or to gloss over the things that he commands. You can't have it both ways. You can't say on the one hand, oh yes, this is a really reliable source. This is one who walked with God. This is one who knows the word of God. But then we don't really have to pay too close attention to what he says. Those two things don't harmonize. They don't go together. As the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That's the way we should approach this epistle. That's the kind of heart and spirit and and desire that we should have as we look at this portion of God's word or any portion of God's word. The question, is it to be considered a reliable source, takes on a lot more serious character 
when you actually do consider the source. So now as we acknowledge that, there are two great commandments that are part of this epistle. Um, There are lots of things that John says, but there are two uh, overriding commandments that we see are, are discussed throughout the epistle. And they're important ones that he deals with. And they're very simple. The first one is love the brethren. Love the brethren. And the second one is don't love the world. Pretty simple, right? Love the brethren, don't love the world. Now, along with that, we understand there's an overarching commandment to love God. We understand that. But under that overarching commandment to love God first, because that's the motive behind first loving the brethren and then not loving the world. So in chapter 4 and verse 21, John says this. In 1 John 4, 21, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So there's that first commandment with the love of God overarching. And just a little beyond where we are here now, in the second chapter, he writes this in verse 15. And we're going to be getting to this next week, Lord willing. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And these two ideas we're going to be fleshing out and and dealing with and speaking to more directly as we work our way through John's letter. But before that, we have this interesting section that we began expounding last week. And in it, John talks about writing and having written. And it's sort of an odd section, these verses. Writing and having written. If you look at verse 12, as we saw last time, he addresses there those whose sins have been forgiven for the sake of the name of Jesus. And he refers to all those as little children, beloved little ones tender and precious in their father's sight. And so we have that that wonderful picture in, in, in verse 12 of the little believer in the hands of a living God. And somebody uh, made the comment last week after the message that that's such a great picture because we are just like little infants in the hands of God. We need constant attention. We need constant, constant tending to constant feeding. We need his care all the time. And he does it so lovingly. We'll come back to that. But it's such an appropriate term because it reflects not only the deeply personal love of the Father for you, his elect, but also your continued dependence on him. And we need to be constantly attended to because there's so much to learn. There's so much that we need from him. And he's promised to keep us as the apple of his eye and under the shadow of his wing. And there's so much care and tending that we need. Now, 
while we are all his dear little ones, in that sense that we find there in verse 12, we're also of varying ages spiritually. Now, generally speaking, there's also some correspondence between our chronological age and our spiritual age, but that's not always the case. But generally speaking, you say that's true. So if you've been a, if you're old and you've been a Christian your whole life, you're probably a mature Christian. Okay? If you're young and you've been a Christian your whole life, you're probably a new Christian because you've only had so many years of learning and experience and so on. So there, there is a correlation there. And so when we talk about these things in this context, those pictures kind of shift back and forth. But the truth is that some are more spiritually mature than others even early on. You can take a case in point. The boy Samuel was in many senses more spiritually mature than Eli's grown sons. He was just a little boy, but he was more spiritually mature than those grown men who had grown up in the house of the high priest. This is true in converts as well. I had a dear friend in college who was younger, much younger than me as a Christian, but more mature as a believer. And I learned a great deal from him during our days together. Now, John chooses to, after settling that that idea of our all being little dear ones in the hands of God, he chooses then to break the dear little ones into three categories. And those he refers to here as fathers, then young men, and finally he goes back to children again. Now most expositors, wisely I think, see these describing various degrees of growth and grace and spiritual maturity. Now there is, as I said, some correlation between age and those things, but it's a spiritual indication. So let's start with the fathers. The fathers represent those believers who have been in the faith for a long time. John himself had probably, when he wrote this, been a believer for more than 60 years. Now, to put that in perspective, he'd been a Christian longer than many of you have been alive. Now, we sometimes lose sight of that that perspective because it's our natural tendency to squeeze narratives together. So we think of John being with Jesus when he was a young man and then writing Revelation when he was a young man and dying. And we don't realize that he had a life just like you and I do. And so he had been a believer for more than 60 years when he's writing this. And that indicates that he had a wealth of experience when he's talking about his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a relationship squeezed into those few years when Christ was on the earth and he walked with him and he talked with him, but it is a relationship with Jesus Christ that has gone from then, now, into his old age. 
And he's had a consistent relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ all that time. Hawkins says this, and he's a commentator from long ago. That's all you need to know about him, an expositor. And he says, there is a certain gradient, gradation in the Christian school, an advancement and growth in Christian knowledge, experience, and grace. In each gradation, humility and love are the brightest ornaments. Now look at what John says to the fathers here. In verse 13, he says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the be- or is from the beginning. And then in verse 14, he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, just as an aside here, I should say that there are some good and godly expositors who believe and some who suspect that the seeming repetition here is the result of an error by a copyist long ago. He wrote it once and wrote it again, and then it got in there. But I really don't believe that's the case. Um, It seems unlikely, and really the arguments for and against that idea are better handled in the classroom where it can be dealt with academically. But I think the repetition here is with purpose. He talks about how he is writing and how he has written. As to why he uses those two terms, I am writing and I write or I have written, it's a matter of perspective. What he is saying is what I am doing at the moment, if you can put it into our context here, what I'm doing right now is preaching the word to you. But you are having the word preached to you. Do you see the the context there? I'm preaching it to you, but you're having it preached to you. It's uh, from the perspective. I'm doing it, you're receiving it. The fathers knew him who was from the beginning. And essentially what he is saying here is, I am writing to you, And you have been written to, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, and you're hearing it because you know him who is from the beginning. So my purpose in addressing you is because you know those things. And God's purpose in putting you in the receiving end of that is because you know those things. So you're getting the letter because God because you've known him as from the beginning, and I'm writing it to you because you know that. I don't know if you can follow that subtle difference, but it's, it's an important thing here in the context. You might think of it this way. God is moving me, John says, to write to you, and he's working in you to read it because it is written to you. So I'm being moved to write it, you're being moved to read it. Beloved, I would say this. Oh, what a blessed state to be mature in the faith and to know and to really know, like these fathers did, the Lord by knowledge and experience. King David made this observation in Psalm 37 in verse 23. He said, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. 
when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. The fathers, and I believe that we can consider the true mothers of the faith in this as well, love, they just love to give testimony to the faithfulness and the love of God. They love to do it. They love to have the opportunity to look back and tell others what they have found in their relationship with the Lord. The love that they've enjoyed, the, the, the instruction that the Lord has given, the correction that God has given. They love to share those things. They have evidence at hand of what it means to walk with the Lord Jesus. And they are, as John Trapp points out, closest to knowing as they have been known, as Paul puts it to the Corinthians where he says there, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things or ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The mature believer, the one who has much experience with God in his or her life, knows how well-known they are by God, how well-known their lives have been by God, how God's hand has been on those lives, how God has blessed, how God has corrected, how, how God has directed. And they are knowing that in a very full way because of the experience that they have with the Lord, but they're the closest also to knowing it fully because they're going to see him face to face soon. These fathers and mothers in the faith may not, as Hawken observes, be as showy in their gifts, perhaps as others, but they tend to be more solid, more solid, because they're talking about what they have experienced, what they have seen, and what they have known. And you remember, that's the way John starts this epistle. He's telling you, I want to tell you about what I know about the Lord Jesus Christ, about my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not talking about just those few years between Christ's uh, public ministry, the beginning of Christ's public ministry, and then his death and resurrection and ascension. He's talking about his life. I have seen this in my whole life long. They know what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good in all sorts of conditions and situations and under all kinds of trials. Those who are in the vigor of, the spiritual, of their spiritual manhood or womanhood are well prepared and they're fit for the battle. They may even be well armed and well trained, but the veteran is the one with the experience. And that's the difference that he's 
reflecting on here. Now, don't misunderstand this. The veteran is not necessarily a better person. Don't get the wrong idea here. No, they're not necessarily um, maybe nearly as qualified as the young man is or the young woman is in some ways in their faith. But they're veterans in the experience. They may not have fared well, especially those as, as well as those who are rising in the ranks. But that doesn't mean that they have not learned and they haven't drawn closer to the Lord through their experiences and thereby have wisdom to share. You see, beloved, the more you know of the ancient of days, the more experience that you have of his grace in your life, the more humbled you are because you have real regrets. You know how many times you failed him, even when you went out with the best of intentions. And you know how many times his grace met you despite that. You know the forgiveness, the tender love, the gracious mercy of the Lord. And those blessings are heartbreaking and humbling. And those who are fathers or mothers who are mature in their faith, who have been believers for a long time, they know that humility. I think every believer who has a long-term confession of faith would like to stand up and say, I've been almost the perfect Christian because I've had such a long tenure as a believer. But not one of them who's honest would ever do it. Because all of that's set before us and we understand it and it humbles us and puts us in the way of grace. The whole of the 51st Psalm by David is the repentance of a man who for many years has known the ancient of days. And its warm, broken, tearful tone is the result of that relationship. Now, this father or mother in the faith tends to be less enamored with the world and usually is blessed with a deep tenderness towards others. Tested, tried, beaten up by the world, mercifully bound up and restored by God, they tend to be gentler in their judgments and more cautious in their censorships because they have their own experience and their own walk with the Lord. Hawkins again says, In this venerable man or woman, this father or mother in Christ, I see a deep concern for impenitent sinners, a wishful anxiety about the rising generation, and devout aspirations ascending as the sacred incense towards heaven. So John is writing to these mature believers And they're receiving his message because they've known the one who is from the beginning and they need to persevere in their love for the brethren and their distaste for the things of this world all the way to the end. And so even though they've known the Father or or known the Ancient of Days, they're still under this command. The command is not, they're not released from under that command. They remain under it. And next you have 
the young men. A.T. Robertson defines these as those who are among the younger element in contrast to the fathers, spiritually, full of vigor and conflict and growing in their victories. So these are those who are just in the prime of what we might call their spiritual life. They are in the battle. They're doing things like raising their families. They're doing things like uh, leading the church. They're, they're in, in the thick of things. And they are full of vigor. They are full of strength uh, from the hand of the Lord. And they're involved in conflict. And they're winning victories by, by prayer and by faithfulness to the Lord. And they are unique in themselves. Proverbs twenty twenty nine says, the, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. I don't have much splendor, but I have a little in my beard, I guess. But these are the ones who, even while John is writing, have overcome the evil one. Even though they're, they're in this intense aspect of life, They are committing themselves to the Lord. They are seeking to live for the Lord. And they are being challenged in all sorts of ways in that that effort to serve the Lord. We referenced it somewhat this morning in Sunday school, where we are seeking to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're anxious to see them established in the faith and anchored in the church. And that battle's being fought by them, by these who are in that position. These are the ones who, even while John is writing, have found victories. These are the men and women who are in the prime of their faith, so to speak. They're not new to the battle. In fact, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the strength of his might, they've gained the victory by faith that overcomes the world and the prince of darkness. But they have the victory, but they're in the battle. And it is John, it is as John points out, that these are the strong ones because the word of God abides in them. The strength referred to is both practical and and spiritual in nature. The word of God being made effectual in them by the Holy Spirit enables them to gain the victory, to overcome in those areas where they need to overcome. Trapp Trapp says that weak grace may evidence pardon of sin, but it is strong grace that can overcome the temptation of Satan. So what kind of battle is this that the young ones are engaged in, that they're fighting? Well, we can maybe take these temptations and put them into three general categories. One expositor does that. And I think it helps us to see what John is referring to here. The three categories are the temptation of Satan against repentance, faith, and sanctification. Repentance faith, and sanctification. Now these all require humility and meekness. And the so-called young men or women are in the very heart of these struggles. You're in the thick of it as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. 
And John is reminding you that you too must love your brethren and remember not to love the world. You have that temptation in regards to repentance, the willingness to acknowledge that you are truly sinners. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning and how when you're dealing with your children, how, how you bring them to a place of repentance. And I always found it helpful to always remember to name the victim and name the crime so or the sin. So I would have just like all parents, one of my children maybe would hit the other one. Let's, let's use that for no reason at all. So I'd tell them, you know, you have to say you're sorry. And they'd try what all children do and lots of adults try to do. I'm sorry. And that was, that was it. That was their confession of, of guilt. And I'd say, no, I'm sorry. That is not being sorry. First of all, I want you to address your brother or your sister by name. So you have to say, Gertrude, I'm so, I didn't name any of my children just so I wouldn't implicate anybody. You have to say, Gertrude, I am sorry that I hit you for no reason at all and shouldn't have done it. So that they're dealing with both who the person is that they've hurt and what it is they've done rather than just sort of getting away with a generic confession. That's hard to do. And the temptation to avoid repentance, if you take it out of that context, out of the family context, and you just bring it into the context of your own life, to go to the Lord and to say, I am sorry, Lord, that I sinned with my eyes or with my heart or with my thoughts or with my hands by, fill in the blank, contrary to your word. That's hard to do. It's hard to make it that personal. And yet it's important that we do, beloved. It is part of what brings repentance to, its, to, its, to the surface. But Satan is there to tempt us away from that and to just say, it's okay just to be generically sorry. Dear Lord, forgive me for all my sins, which is really convenient, isn't it? Because you don't have to think about any particular sin, right? And you're addressing him as dear Lord instead of in the personal way that you're the one I've offended. So there's temptation there. There's a temptation away from faith, a temptation that's born of seeing things and seeing things going on in the world and being driven by the world and your fears and your doubts and your actions rather than living by faith and saying, I don't care what direction the world is going in, this is the direction I'm going in because it's the one commanded to me by the Lord. I don't care what my feelings are, my obligation under Christ is to love my brother or my sister. And even though my feelings may be leading me and tempting me in another direction, I need to deal with that and I need to be broken in that and broken in my own heart and grant that forgiveness and exercise that love which Christ commands. 
And then there's the sanctification. I don't want to be more Christ-like. I want to be more me-like. But the command of the word is for me to be Christ-like. And again, the temptation of Satan is there. So you're in a, one of those heated moments of spouses, and the temptation is to be you instead of like Christ in that situation. But you young men and women, you who are in the throes of your faith and, and in the vigor of it, you're the one who are, who are dealing with those things now. You're the one that is fighting this, you're the ones who are fighting this battle. And John is writing to you because you've already overcome the wicked one. It's not like this is something you have to gain a victory for. You already have the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a matter of resting in him and in his word and, and trusting that word. We're in a battle, beloved, that never ends in this world. When Christ makes you his own, you're immediately engaged on his behalf in the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And you may think that you're just dealing with changing and varied trials of life in this world. But it's much more than that, beloved. It's in those changing scenes that you're required to exercise repentance when you're wrong and you've sinned. Even to the loss of face. To exercise faith rather than give way to pragmatism or compliance with the world. To seek to be sanctified by the Spirit through the Word. Can you imagine the humility required of Peter? You know, when he was in the vitality of his struggle of faith? Can you picture the challenges that Paul faced as he was jailed, abused, and hated for the faith? And the Gentiles, as they sought to find the grace to set aside their worldliness and to embrace the sanctification of the Spirit. And all the while, they were each and every one of them tempted by the evil one. William Hendrickson says, This possession is the secret of their strength and the source of their victory. As long as they treasure, obey, and believe that word, they will be victorious and overcome the power of deceitful Satan. So you have those who are in the, in the vitality of their faith. It's not new. They're not old in it yet. They're just in the midst of it. And those of you who are in that place, you're the ones who have the word of God and have overcome the wicked one. John's writing to you because that's true of you. And then you have the children, the poised and ready, we might say. It's generally accepted that this is addressed to those who are new in the faith. Now, they too, like the fathers, are described here by John as knowing the Ancient of Days. But their knowledge is fresh and as yet not tempered by time and experience. That doesn't place them in a useless position, however, it places them in just the opposite position. They stand before the Lord in the freshness of their faith, ready to meet the challenges that stand before them. 
They're going to have to learn what it means to love the brethren when the brethren may not be so lovable. That never happens, does it? No. To learn what it means to repent as they discover how much of a grip the world may really have on them when they find the world too lovable or too fearful. To live by faith when all visible supports and comforts melt away. But because they know Christ, because their sins are forgiven for his sake, they stand on the brink of it all, not defeated and threatened to be overcome, but ready to overcome. They stand in their new life in Christ, able to do all things through Christ who strengthens them. And one of the great things, as we pause from this, uh, or just say, give another side here, is the mutual profit that comes from this. If wisdom and encouragement are needed, the fathers and the mothers are willing and ready to serve. You need encouragement and you stand the faith. You need encouragement in what you're doing and what it is to trust the Lord. You go to a mother or father in the faith and you'll find them more than ready, more than willing to encourage you and to pray with you. If courage and vitality are required, the young ones in the prime of their spiritual lives will stand with all. And if strength and excitement are flagging, the children are there in their fresh faith to remind all of what it's like to throw oneself wholeheartedly into the fray. Sometimes the fathers see the young ones, the very youngest ones, the children, and they go, whoa, whoa, you know, slow down a little bit, you get a little maturity. But the children are looking at them and saying, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and so they play off of each other. And we're challenged by fresh and new faith that comes from those who are new believers. And we are given perspective by those who are mature in their faith. And we're given strength and courage by all of those who are in that battle. In the end, then, John is writing to all the elect, all the Lord's little dear ones. None of them can afford to rest or relax. He writes to the most mature believer and to the newest one with the same urgency and the same call to vigilance. You mature believers, you must not let down in loving the brethren and in not loving the world. And that goes all the way down to the youngest of all. The world is not now, nor will it ever be, beloved, your friend. We have been called out of it with a specific task of shining light into it. And we do this at whatever spiritual age we may be at by living for Christ. Now as we close, just look back at the things John commends here in the believer. If you look at these three categories, what is he commending in each of them? He's commending knowledge, abiding in the word, strength, and victory.
Those are the things that he's commanding, or commending, I should say. I might have said the three things, but it's four things if I said that. I apologize. The fear and reverence of the Lord, beloved, above all else is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. It's in those who are mature in their faith that that wisdom resides most often. And they're a good resource for that wisdom. Abiding in the word involves keeping the word in the heart with a broken and humble spirit. In Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's what those in the prime of their faith need to be doing. They need to be humble and contrite before the word. Our strength comes from the Lord. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, says Paul of the Corinthians. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And the fourth thing he commends is faith. Because faith is the victory that overcomes the world. In 1 John 5, 4, John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So even the freshest of believers who believes that has the power of overcoming the world through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as you look down upon us, you know the mature, those who are in the very vitality of their faith and the strength of it, and those who are new and fresh in their faith. Lord, you know that our needs are different, but your commands are the same for all of us. And we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in loving you and thereby learning to love the brethren. And Lord, knowing not to love the world or the things of the world. Father, we pray that you would help us to encourage one another to be like iron that sharpens iron as we fellowship together. And Lord, we pray that we would serve you and serve one another with joy and a spirit of thanksgiving. There's anyone here, Lord, who is outside of faith completely. We pray, Lord, that uh, they would see that there are great things to be had in the Lord Jesus Christ and that it begins with repentance and acknowledgement of sin and coming and seeking that forgiveness which can be found through Christ alone. And finding that, Lord, they may begin in their youthful faith and love and getting to know the Ancient of Days. And Lord, I know that you'll be with them all their days. We thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy to us as you remember that we're but dust and you pity us like your children.
You know where we are. You know who we are. You know what we are. We thank you, Lord, for the way you deal with us so lovingly and carefully. Receive our thanks and grant us these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.